Chapter 16, verse 1 The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, It will be foul weather today, For the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, Ye can discern the face of the sky, But can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation Seeketh after a sign, And there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. The Pharisees should have known what was happening. They were the spiritual beacons, quote-unquote, among their people, and yet they failed to discern what was going on. They failed to recognize the Jewish Messiah. He calls them an adulterous generation, not in the sexual sense, but in the spiritual sense, because Israel was married to God, and therefore she should have known what was occurring. Her accountability, her judgment, is going to be far greater than anybody else's. Jonah is mentioned here. Jonah was a Jewish Old Testament saint sent to a wicked Gentile people in Nineveh, He reluctantly approached them and after being pushed by the Lord, after nearly drowning by his shipmates, he arrives and he calls on the people of Nineveh to repent and they repented. So for the Lord to say to the Jewish leaders that the only sign they would get was from Jonas was a severe slap down. Like I say, a Jewish prophet going to Gentiles which were seen as unclean for the most part in the eyes of the Jewish community was very much a snub from the Lord but really they are wanting signs and miracles they are carnal and he says you won't get a sign in fact I am the sign they've seen him from the very beginning and yet they still refuse to bend the knee tongues as I've said also is a sign to unbelievers it's also a judgment from the Lord so here the Pharisees and the Sadducees the Jewish priests as we would see them today have come together once again but they haven't come to worship the Lord they've come to trip him up they've come to catch him out as it were and that perpetual hardness of their hearts is found throughout the entire New Testament and at the end of verse 4 it says and he left them and departed when God leaves man man is finished the epistle to the Ephesians tells us in the fourth chapter that first of all man forsakes God and then in Romans 1 God forsakes man and when God forsakes man man is finished And here you find the Lord departing from the religious elite, which is also going to be echoed in Matthew 24. But the common people heard him gladly. So the simplicity of Christ, which is mentioned in 2 Corinthians, is lost on just about all of the academics. 
And if you look at anybody in the world today who claims to be an academic, the chances are they are not believing in the simplicity of Christ. They don't believe in the Bible and therefore they are trusting in their intellect and they are hoping that their intellect won't fail them and when they die they simply cease to exist annihilation that's what they are hoping for the scripture tells us also that to be saved you have to become like a little child that's not easy but it's also not impossible but to become like a little child first of all you have to humble yourself and you will only humble yourself once you have seen your sin and you will only see your sin when you come to the word of God on your knees if necessary George Muller the great British evangelist from the 19th century read the Bible all the way through on his knees 100 times throughout his life of course to read the Bible on your knees 100 times throughout your life is remarkable his heart was right and the Lord blessed that man more than probably anybody else from his generation because his heart was right when your heart is right the Lord will show you just about everything you can possibly imagine but again you have to come to the Lord on his terms you have to believe on his son totally to save you and then you feed on the word of God each day I would say five and when his disciples were come to the other side they had forgotten to take bread then Jesus said unto them take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and they reasoned among themselves saying it is because we have taken no bread they are thinking with their stomachs not with their heads once again the Lord is speaking in figurative language this is found throughout the entire New Testament and the Apostles should have known that he was speaking in spiritual terms in John 4 when he meets the woman at the well and he starts to speak to her about water straight away she thinks he is referring to literal water H2O when in reality he is speaking about spiritual water now she wouldn't necessarily have known that because she wasn't in the Lord's inner circle in John 3 when Nicodemus arrives to meet the Lord he says to Nicodemus you are a leader in Israel and yet don't grasp the deeper things of God and he should have grasped the deeper things of God back in the Gospel of Luke Zachariah failed to grasp that his wife would give birth to John the Baptist he was a priest and through his unbelief through his failure to grasp the promise from the angel he is struck with dumbness he should have known much more in John 6 when the Lord speaks to the people about eating his flesh and drinking his blood he doesn't correct their misunderstanding when they say to him this is a hard saying 
who can perceive it. He doesn't correct them because two or three verses later it says, A many walked with him no more. John 6.66 He knew that they had already decided to turn their backs on him. Therefore he leaves them in that willful ignorance. He wasn't speaking of his literal flesh and his literal blood in John 6. He wasn't speaking about bottles of water in John 4. He wasn't speaking about going back into your mother's womb in John 3. But he leaves certain people with the wrong impression of what he is saying to them because he knows they aren't going to believe on him. And therefore they are spared even further judgment at the great white throne i.e. why the parables are used throughout the New Testament throughout the Gospels really because he is speaking to one group of people the Apostles and another group of people those who are going to be saved among the multitudes but the third group are the unbelieving Pharisees, Sadducees, the secret police Herod's secret police, Pilate's secret police and just people in general that have no intention of ever being saved of ever believing on him and therefore the latter group are left in darkness they get the parables they hear but they don't understand they see but they don't perceive hence why the Lord has to explain to those with open hearts with open minds what he is saying the same is true of tongues. Without an interpreter, nobody would understand what was being said in a typical first century church. The enlightened will hear the interpretation from the interpreter and receive it, whereas the non-enlightened, as it were, the unbelievers, would hear the tongue. They may be present for the interpreter, but even if they weren't present for the interpreter, they probably still wouldn't believe what the interpreter would tell them anyway because in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gets up and the apostles get up and they start to speak in tongues the apostles that is the traveling people from around the Roman Empire still don't really grasp what is occurring and they say that the apostles are drunk the things of God are foolishness to the unsaved unregenerate person hence why you need to be born again 8 which when Jesus perceived he said unto them O ye of little faith why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread he rebukes the scribes the Pharisees the Sadducees from verse 3 and here he is rebuking his apostles the Lord is no respect to a person's he put Moses and Aaron to death due to their sins. They were still saved, but they died due to their sins. Because he has no respect of persons, everybody gets treated the same way. Some people's sins go beforehand to the judgment, some follow later. But here he is rebuking his own, his chosen apostles, because he wants them to understand that he is speaking about spiritual things and they should have known that. So the rebuke may not be as severe as what the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees experienced a couple of verses earlier, but nonetheless it is still a rebuke. Do ye not yet understand, neither remember, the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How could they have forgotten? But they did forget. And once again, this shows me the honest attempt by Matthew to portray what he experienced and what he was also a part of. Failing at times to grasp the enormity of the Lord's ministry, failing to discern literal from figurative language, and he will put into his gospel what actually occurred. There's no conspiracy here, there's no contamination here, there's no collusion here. What you are reading from Matthew's Gospel is a true account of what occurred. And as I said so many times already, this underscores for me that the Word of God is divine in origin, even though it was written by 41 men living on three continents over 1600 years apart. Nonetheless, all of these Jewish writers are all speaking the truth. They are telling you what actually occurred, even when it condemns them. 10. Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many baskets took ye up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. They're like children. And you have to become a child to inherit the kingdom of God. You have to be childlike, as I say, to inherit the kingdom of God. And once they humbled themselves, once they got at the feet of the Lord, he explained it to them, and they immediately grasped what was occurring. 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He asks all of the apostles, and there's a reason why I have highlighted the obvious there. 14. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That was the word on the street. This isn't what the apostles are saying of him. The apostles don't believe. That's who Christ is. They are simply relaying to him what they have heard on their travels. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Again, ye. He's asking all of them. But who do you all say that I am? Never mind the man and woman on the street. Who do you say that I am? 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, again, is the oldest, and he speaks up. Yes, he was given a new name when the Lord called the apostles, but so too were James and John. Barnabas gets a new name also. Paul is 
given a new name, I believe, from the book of Acts. Quite possibly when he goes up to the third heaven and back. But that's just my own private theory. But here, Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To be called the Son of God meant you were equal to God. He got it right. This is the one occasion where Peter gets something right. Nearly every other time when we come across Peter in the scripture, he is in trouble and he needs bailing out. But here, he is completely right, 100%. 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Peter understood who the Lord was, and I also believe that the apostles also understood who Christ was. It just so happens that Peter was the main spokesperson. Also, I will say that what you have just heard me read to you is only found in Matthew chapter 16. You find in Mark and Luke an abbreviated account of this important interaction. And the reason I say that is because the Church of Rome make the bogus claim that Peter was the first pope and therefore we still bow down to every other pope that came after him. Now what I say to that is this, that if that were the case, if Peter was the first pope, if that exchange is as important as the Church of Rome would have us believe, why don't we find the same account echoed in Mark and Luke and John? It's only found in Matthew's Gospel. Now I'm not negating it, I'm not playing it down. The exchange occurred, it is what it is. Peter did speak on behalf of the Apostles and was rewarded for that. But once again, if it's as important as we would be asked to believe from the Church of Rome, then you would expect the other three Gospel writers to have it in their gospel accounts too and they don't it's only found in Matthew 16 but let's read on 18 and I say also unto thee thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it his church is built first and foremost on himself then the apostles build on Christ then the prophets build on the apostles. That's your foundation. 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. But like I've said repeatedly, there are two parts to it. A physical kingdom and a spiritual kingdom. Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2 with the keys, which is an Old Testament expression to mean authority. He gets up with the authority of Christ, with the anointing of Christ, and preaches the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, first and foremost to the Jews. That commission was given first and foremost to Peter, and then it was given to Paul. But Paul 
didn't get it through Peter. Now this is a problem for the Church of Rome because the Church of Rome believed that the Pope is chosen by the Cardinals and the Cardinals are chosen by the Pope. It's rather circular but that's how it occurs. Now the laity have no say whatsoever in who appoints the Cardinals who will then go on to vote for the Pope. So the Pope appoints the Cardinals and the Cardinals vote for the Pope. Here the keys are given to Peter and yet by Acts chapter 9 Paul arrives on the scene and starts preaching the gospel and yet his commission his anointing as it were didn't come from Peter who has the keys here it came from God and after Acts chapter 10 Peter recedes away and Paul becomes a driving force of the New Testament church Paul writes 13 and if you wish to give him Hebrews 14 epistles whereas Peter writes only two epistles Paul is very much the driving force of the early church and yet here Jesus is giving the keys to Peter meaning that this isn't as big a deal as the Church of Rome would have us to believe it's important of course it is and Peter has been rewarded for his public acknowledgement of who Christ is and because of his public confession of faith in Christ he is rewarded with the keys but two chapters later and we find that the keys are given to all of the Apostles not just Peter one other point whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven meaning quite simply if you believe the gospel and are saved I as a saved man have the right to say to you that you are now saved if I give you the gospel and you don't believe what I tell you I have the right to say to you that you are still in your sins 20 then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ he didn't come to be publicly proclaimed as king yes it happened on Palm Sunday but that wasn't his choice that was always going to happen and that happened through foreknowledge again written back in the Old Testament that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and they would say Hosanna is he that comes in the name of the king and he was the king and he is the king and he receives that acknowledgement but here this message is just for the twelve just for the twelve so for here and now keep it to yourselves that's what he is driving home 21 from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day he points the finger to the Jewish elite the leaders and he gives a secret briefing to the disciples of what is going to occur bit by bit he is building on the light on the revelation that he has given them because he doesn't wish to overload them that's why we need to grow in grace at our own speed 
but above all we need to walk before we can run. Look at 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter meant well. Peter couldn't bear to think of the Messiah being crucified by the religious elite, possibly by the hated pagan Romans, he could understand that, but by the religious elite, by the Jewish leaders, by those that claim to have a line going back to Moses, that was too much for him. But nonetheless, he shouldn't have rebuked the Lord. He had no right to rebuke the Lord. Just four, five, six verses earlier, Peter is proclaiming Christ's Messiahship and is rewarded with the keys. And yet here, he has the audacity to rebuke the Lord. This shows the carnality of Peter. But let's read on. 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offence unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Wow, what a quick fall from grace. One minute Peter is publicly proclaiming Jesus to be the son of the living God. That in and of itself was remarkable. And yet here he has fallen hard from grace. Again, the carnality of Peter comes through. And on top of that, the Lord says, Satan, get behind me. Satan was behind Peter's outburst. He wasn't in Peter, as some claim, but he was behind Peter. He was oppressing Peter, like he would oppress Paul throughout his life, throughout his ministry. 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He now addresses everybody, not just Peter, but all of the apostles. Because here, there's a problem with Peter. Peter is carnal, he's fleshly. And he hasn't put the old man to death. He hasn't crucified the old nature. And he needs to pick up his cross and follow Christ daily. He needs to deny himself. Now, I could say a lot about this, but due to a time restriction that I have now placed on myself, all I will say is this, that to be saved is simple. You need to believe on the Lord and trust in him totally to save you. Then you need to deny yourself daily. You need to watch what you allow your eyes to see and what you allow your ears to hear. You need to walk with the Lord. You need to renew your mind daily. You need to be sold out to the Lord. Or as somebody said, divorced from the world system. That won't happen overnight. I guarantee you of that. But if you walk closely with the Lord, if you seek him in prayer day and night, if you pray without ceasing, you will get closer to the Lord and the things of the world will become less and less relevant to you. 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. If you try to live a life without Christ, 
hoping to gain everlasting life, you will lose your soul and go to hell. But if you lose your life for the Lord, if you become a martyr, or if you die unto yourself and become a eunuch for the Lord, not a physical eunuch, although some have chosen to become physical eunuchs, but a spiritual eunuch, if you choose to sell out to the Lord, then you will find everlasting life. It's a paradox, and yet it's quite clear to me that to come after Christ, to be saved, means to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and if necessary, lose your life. These things are evidence of the new birth, the willingness to do those things. And I know for a fact that the moment a man or a woman is truly born again, they would do anything that Christ wanted them to do. They are on cloud nine. The moment they are born again, they know they have passed from death unto life. They know that they belong to the Lord and they love him. They truly love him. They love him more than anybody else in the world. Hence why it says, if you love your family more than you love me, you are not worthy of me. And I've already said that there are different types of love in the Bible. But to be a disciple, to continue on in his word, you need to be prepared to deny yourself, to pick up your cross. And if necessary, lose your life in order to find it. 26. For what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There was an expression some years ago that went something like this. A wealthy man died and he was buried and somebody said, how much did he leave? And the response was, he left everything. Another expression went something like this. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. How true. 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. That's the second coming, Matthew 24, not the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That feeds into the transfiguration. To see God and survive was almost unheard of. When the Lord appeared to Moses, and I believe that was Jesus, a Christology, in Exodus, Moses sees the back of the Lord. To see the Lord and live was impossible. God is a force totally unexplainable, really, in words to describe. And therefore, man has seen glimpses of God. And man sees God during certain periods of time, but normally for a very brief moment of time. Like I say, to stand, to witness, to experience God in all his glory and survive would be impossible. 
But here the apostles are going to see Christ coming in his kingdom and not die. For me, this has a twofold application. A is going to refer to the transfiguration, which comes in the 17th chapter. And B is going to refer to Matthew 24, when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation. And he comes for the tribulation saints, those that were saved during their time on the earth, during the seven years. And they see him coming. And they don't taste of death. They don't die. But for here and now. I'm going to apply this directly. At the apostles being chosen. To see the Lord coming. At the transfiguration.